This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Welcome back to Lensmere Ears, the movie podcast when we see something new and we connect it to older pictures that you may not know about. My name is Karsten Knox. I'm a film writer and blogger. My blog is called Flaw in the Iris, and it's at HalifaxBloggers.com. And my name is Stephen Cook, and I'm an arts writer here in Halifax for the Chronicle Herald. Today we're talking about Mother, 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 the Darren Aronofsky film, and the history of movies that are aiming to freak you out. Every day is Mother's Day when you can download a podcast and listen to it at your heart's desire. So today we're going to talk about Mother. This is the film. I don't think it's still in cinemas right now, but it is. Uh, it it was quite. It made quite a splash when it arrived about a month ago in cinemas. I think it might no be the most controversial film of the year, and it got us thinking about controversial pictures, uh, movies that. Uh, Stephen uh, calls freakout movies, <laughs> oh, for lack of a better term, head yeah, movies. Head movies was a favorite term back in uh, the good old summer of love and years following that. But yeah. uh, but uh, it's it's certainly not the sort of thing you see. You know, given given the sort of centralization of movie distribution and the rise of the multiplex, not the sort of thing you see in a traditional mainstream theater these days. Certainly not from a major studio like Paramount Pictures, yeah. which uh, took the ball with. Uh, Darren Aronofsky's mother, exclamation point, and ran yeah. with it. Yeah, no, I, and it's true. And when we look back at some of the films we'll talk about during the podcast, uh, they are made by contrary provocateurs, these filmmakers who are looking to shake us out of our, you know, our, I don't know, our 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 day-to-day and really show us something different. And ha- they have really something to say. And, and I think that's maybe why I liked Mother so much. I just felt like, oh, here's a movie heavily allegorical, uh, deeply weird, starring one of the biggest stars, if not the biggest star in Hollywood right now, Jennifer Lawrence. And uh, yeah, and I, I just, I really like the ambition of the film. And I think that's what I like about a lot of these movies, is even if they don't work, I'm impressed that the filmmakers had the gumption to go for it and tell these kinds of stories. Now, Mother is from Aronofsky, who amongst mainstream, if you even want to call him that, filmmakers these days, he is probably one of the most provocative. If you think about his his body of work going back to Pi, Requiem for a Dream, uh, The Fountain, Black Swan, Noah, and The Wrestler is probably his, I don't know, his, if, if you think about, compare him to David Lynch, The Wrestler is probably his straight story. story yeah, it's, it's a really, really straightforward character piece, yeah. uh, you know, narrative, but uh, that's not really... His claim to fame. No, no, and, and the mother, cer- mother, I should say, is certainly not like that. It's it's a lot more out there, and I would compare it more to Noah or to uh, to the Fountain. Um, it is uh, a story about uh, basically it's it's Jennifer Lawrence's story. She her she plays the the the, the mother character, uh, and uh, she is helping. Uh, her husband, she's married to a much older man, played by Javier Bardem. He's a poet, and he's gets all, he's he's got a lot of love for his work. And she's building the house, this rural mansion, uh, or at least trying to rebuild it and renovate it. It's a house that he grew up in. And uh, meanwhile, he is too preoccupied to help. He's frustrated by his 
his inspiration having abandoned him. And uh, one day a stranger arrives at the door and and he invites the stranger in. The stranger is a doctor, played by Ed Harris, who ingratiates himself into their space, much to the mother's dismay. But the husband won't listen to her, won't consult with her before making decisions. He continues to open the door to their home to guests while she's constantly have to clean up after these obnoxious people. Uh, and then Michelle Pfeiffer appears, uh, and that's the doctor's wife. And before long, their two sons, played by actual brothers, Brian and Dunal Gleason. Now, what do they all want, and what's going on here? The house itself has secrets, too. There's something weird in the basement, and then there's a strange gem that the poet, uh, the husband, keeps in his office. Uh, and it, it's all... Yeah, and that's that's about as much as I'd care to say about it. I think from there on, it just it just spins. The, this is a movie that really spins around its characters, around Jennifer Lawrence's face, who is she is front and center throughout this. Yeah, she's constantly moving through the house, and we we see her fixing things up, and then cleaning up messes, and uh, you know pouring love into this house, and having that kind of torn away from her uh, over the course of the film as these reckless strangers kind of run rampant through the through the house and uh it it's uh it's it's literally a nightmare i mean i mm-hmm. i think you know obviously the controversy about this film is that it received uh a an audience you know audience members who were polled or voted online or whatever gave it an f you know critics were fairly you know the, the aggregate you know critical score for this was pretty high in in the 80 percentile of critics who appreciated the film and enjoyed the film whereas audience uh, members who kind of went in unawares uh hated it yeah. <laughs> for for the most part I, I i actually generally i don't have a lot of sympathy for marketers but i think in this film they had a challenge to try to convince audiences to come to something like this which is so aggressive i mean it in some ways it's really taking a shot at the audience uh, in a way that people don't like to feel this uncomfortable. And I think this is the kind of movie that makes them feel uncomfortable. And, and I would uh, equate it to some of the tropes of 1970s suspense. I wouldn't necessarily call it a horror film, but it just... It it's off- horrific. It, it is horrific, <laughs> it, and it certainly refuses to offer easy answers. I mean, there's a thing in the toilet. Why does the poet get so much love? We never really get a sense of what his writing is like. Uh, why? How does anyone reach the house if there aren't any roads to it? Why is it that the mother can't leave? And what is the yellow tincture that she drinks for her pain? These are the questions. I had a list of questions that I had as I was sort of watching it. But I I so enjoyed the film. And uh, it really grabbed me on an emotional level. And I realized it was because it was it's one of those movies that really works on your subconscious. Uh, if you can accept what's going on in the film, I think you can appreciate what it's trying to say. Well, I, you know, I, you mentioned the marketers, and, and I think that was one of the big problems with the film is that if the, the trailer that I saw made it look like a straight-up horror film. You know, a couple lives in a house in, in, you know, in the country somewhere. Some weird strangers show up and menace the couple. Um, you know, made you think of that film called The Strangers where, um, you know, a mysterious assailants wearing bags over their head attack an attractive young couple in their their house in the the middle of nowhere and this this felt like that same kind of ride and i think that's what the majority of people paying to see uh jennifer lawrence movie star um in a film similar to that which starred uh scott Ski, scott speedman not quite a movie star uh, <laughs> right yeah uh, in this case was, it seemed to be a more high concept uh glossier version of that concept uh, and there's certainly elements of that in here, but it's not the film that people no. were expecting at all. And, you know, I didn't see it 
immediately when it came out. In fact, we went, I, I think it had been playing for a couple of weeks when we went to uh-huh. a matinee and had the whole theater to ourselves, yeah. which is kind of a treat, I guess. It would have been nice to see, hear some other reactions, but I can imagine that that opening weekend, there were quite a few people leaving the theater in disgust, perhaps, because they, they've been led down the garden path, as it were, to see a film that was not what they expected to see. And um, I think uh, we had the... Uh, the advantage of foresight and, and foreknowledge that this is not going to be a standard uh, cinematic journey um, through a you know nightmarish home invasion. It was going to mm-hmm. be something else entirely. And uh, the trailer, I think, I think most of it is just taken from the first chunk of the film, so you don't actually see what really happens when things uh, spiral out of control. And uh, you know, so so having a little bit of foreknowledge. And also, not really knowing where it was going to go, I think played uh, played well for us, and hopefully for you if you haven't seen it yet uh, and uh, are ready for something quite quite unique uh, cinematically. I mean, it it is a nightmare. It's the film is 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 nightmarish on so many levels, and it has that kind of well, it's it has dream logic in in the way that things happen, and you know, that, like it it felt like I was watching somebody else's dreams, and and clearly that was kind of the inspiration for yeah. this. Where especially when you know with Jennifer Lawrence as the mother of the title, um, you know her worst fears, the worst fears of a mother imaginable, all come true in in quite hor- terrifying detail, and uh, that is uh, that is not something for the. Uh, for the faint of heart or the uh, expectant. No, absolutely. Uh, and I, I I did enjoy, I think, some of the filmmakers' sort of dark humor. This is kind of a, uh, I, think, I think you could say that this is a movie about the insidiousness of gender roles. I think you could say that uh, it's about celebrity and it's about how we adore artists all out of proportion. Uh, and I don't think that the filmmaker Aronofsky is letting himself off the hook. I think he's looking, he's saying himself, he's just as guilty of enjoying the attention of of, of his public as anybody. Um, but I, I think at its core, this is probably an environmental allegory. It's about how we treat the earth. Uh, and if that sounds too heavy-handed, well, you know, this is one of those <laughs> movies. It's a little heavy-handed. Uh, it's, I think it's more operatic than Black Swan, if you remember Black Swan. Yes. I think it's more strangely, strangely true to to the biblical scripture than Noah, which felt more to me like almost like a post-apocalyptic fantasy. Kind of, yeah. And, uh, and it's, Giant rock monsters. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, I think it's, in some ways, I think it's more effective than uh, than The Fountain, which I know we'll, we should talk about because I know you saw it recently. Uh, yeah, so I, I, think it's, I think it's great. I, I think uh, I, I really, if you get a chance to see it, I would recommend anyone listening get a chance to see it on the big screen. Uh, it it has it's shot on I believe uh, super sixteen super millimeter. sixteen millimeters so it has this grainy quality but you know it is one of those movies where I think if you watched it at home you'd be tempted to escape <laughs> and this is one of those movies where you need to be trapped with it yes exactly and I yeah. think that's what made it so effective in the in the cinema yeah it is uh, it is probably you know like I mean if you've seen Black Swan and, and Requiem for a Dream you kind of know that that this is going to take a pretty dark turn pretty quickly. And, uh, but it, it, it does go at places that those films don't necessarily go. And, uh, you have to be, uh, I guess you kind of have to prepare yourself for it. I mean, even I, I tried not to read too much about it before I went, but at the same time I knew that it was not the film I was led to expect. And, um, I think I found the right balance because I, I found it a really engaging and, and, uh, surprising cinematic experience. Uh, it's, um, 
you know, and Jennifer Lawrence has to go through some pretty horrific stuff <laughs> over the course of this film. Um, I, you know, you really, you really do feel for her and her character as, as everything kind of rebels against her, basically. Everything that she's put her trust in and her, her hopes in uh, all come to naught in the course of this film. And I think, I think if you're watching, even if you don't know a ton about it, I think you can figure out it's, it's an allegory and not taking place in any kind of grounded reality fairly quickly. I mean, you've got this house, it's in the middle of nowhere. There doesn't appear to be any actual approach to the house. There's no road, there's no driveway. You never see vehicles, yet people are constantly arriving. Um, you know, it has, uh, the first thing that popped into my head was like sort of the absurdity of a Eugene Ionesco play where where things happen in, on, on a different kind of plane of, of existence. I mean, rhinoceros comes to mind, you know, where characters just start, you know, all of a sudden all of society is turning into rhinoceroses from humans. And it was, it was, I mean, kind of an allegory, I guess, about the communist witch hunts to a certain degree, mm -hmm. where you know people were just turning from sensible humans into red baiting uh, communist hunters. I, I don't, I don't know that that work at all, but I, it sounds like the lobster from last. Well, year. yeah, well, a lobster is very much comes from the same sort of well of the theater of the of the absurd uh, that was, uh, you know, came out of I guess the post Second World War period. I mean, it's kind of an extension of surrealism and dataism and that kind of stuff. Um, but more theatrical, perhaps a little more easy to follow. It wasn't necessarily all craziness for craziness sake, like in the case of Dolly and the surrealists. Um, but at the same time, it was acknowledging that life itself is fairly absurd and trying to reflect that in, uh, in these works of art. And, uh, and mother certainly does that. Um, you know, even though technology isn't really present, we get the, the feel of the way things can spiral out of control. People get too heated up by the, the dumbest of, of concepts and, and uh, incidents. And, uh, you know, and, and then religion can get way over the top. I think fundamentalism comes under attack in a big way in this film. I mean, this film is juggling so many things within its allegory. You can read it so many different ways. I mean, that's kind of the beauty of it. You could watch it twice in a row and get something completely different out of it the second time around. And it's, you know, seeing that in a major motion picture is fairly rare these days. You know, you know, mostly it's fairly straightforward narratives or, you know, superheroes slugging it out. So yeah. for something like this to slip through the cracks and actually get to a multiplex in uh, here in Nova Scotia is, is, is something to be... Uh, to be acknowledged and 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 be thankful for, uh, you know, how, how many more films like this Paramount is going to get behind? It's hard to say. I don't know. Uh, I mean, I don't think this was a terribly expensive film to make. Obviously, you know, it had pretty much one location and 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 you know a very basic set of sets of the inside of this house. Um, you know, and a lot of star power. You know, people like like Ed Harris and Michelle Phillips to kind of lend it some credulity. Mm. Um, oh, Michelle Pfeiffer. Pfeiffer. Yes, <laughs> I knew it. I I had a different bunch of Michelles in my head, but yes, Michelle Pfeiffer, who uh, doesn't get nearly enough good roles these days. So to see her play something with uh, some real bite to it, to yeah. play, you know, kind of a, a villainous of sorts, you know, I, I, I'm reminded of Catwoman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Tim Burton Batman Returns a little bit, but I she, agree. you know, she really gets to put some bite into her performance, and that was a treat to see as well. Yeah, and I I think what you said about Lawrence is true. She's likely not going to get a lot of award. Uh, love for this film, but uh, her, I mean, she's she's really good at it. And she's the film requires her to go in this real major emotional arc, and uh, and I I really thought she did a great job with this film. Um, but uh, but yeah, now you also saw the Fountain. And I wondered if you wanted to say a few things about that. Amongst all of Aronofsky's film, the Fountain, I think, is the one that has freaked people out the most. <laughs> next to this one, maybe just by virtue of it, if it offering something that that 
people haven't seen before. Well, it's, it's, uh, you know, again, it's another allegory. It's, it's multi-layered. Um, in fact, I went into this thinking I wasn't really going to enjoy it because most of the stuff I read about it was negative. Um, and then I ended up liking it way more than I thought I was going to. And basically Hugh Jackman plays a character in, uh, three different periods of time. Uh, you know, he, you could say he's either playing three different characters or he's playing the same person reincarnated at three different, which I think you know, is the interpretation a lot of people went with, and it sort of makes sense. Um, all searching for the fountain of youth, or in this case, the tree of knowledge from the Garden of Eden. So again, we're heavily into the biblical territory here, as an as is Aronofsky's want. Um, and uh, you know, he's a, he plays a Spanish conquistador searching for the fountain of youth um, of legend in uh, in Central America. Then uh, in present day, he's a uh, I guess he's a brain surgeon uh, trying to uh, find a cure for brain cancer using uh, using botanical elements from from the rainforest, and uh, they think they may have found a you know some bark from the tree of life, uh, and then he's uh, and then in the future, so it's past, present, and future. In the future, he's this kind of star child, you know, man god or something like that, floating through the heavens in this uh, in this orb, which uh, contains the um, the tree of life, which is dying, and he's trying to find a way to keep it alive. Uh, until it gets to this uh, nebula in, in a far-off galaxy where, and to be honest, maybe this is where I did get a bit lost. I'm not sure what was supposed to happen in that nebula, but I, I guess that was supposed to bring the tree of life back to life, and uh, and then uh, he could return to Earth with its health-giving and life-giving properties. Um, you know, so again, not all of it works, but uh, it's it's not nearly as confounding as I was led to believe. Uh, you know, certainly there's no issues with separating the different eras in which the film takes place and keeps cutting back and forth between. And of course, the present day Hugh Jackman, who's kind of the main uh, Hugh of the film, uh, has his wife, played by Rachel Weisz, is of course dying from brain cancer and a brain tumor. And uh, so he's kind of fighting against time to try and save her. Um, you know, with this new miracle cure that he's convinced will, will help her. Um, and it's working on some monkeys in the lab and he just wants to go straight from the lab uh, to her brain, basically, <laughs> even though that goes against all medical principles and he's taking it way too, too personally. You've got Ellen Burstyn on hand as kind of, I guess, his, his superior, his supervisor, who's, you know, telling him he's, you know, he's crazy, you got to play by the book, you can't be so wild with your theories and experiments, uh, which is is a kind of a little hackneyed, especially in a in medical drama, but it, it kind of works because everything in this movie is so life size and over the top. And, uh, but at the same time, it, it, he shows a fair bit of restraint in the film. I mean, it's, it's, it's just, just around an hour and a half. So it's not too demanding of you time-wise. Uh, Jackman gives a very fevered, intense performance, maybe a bit hammy at times. I don't, he has I, that ability. I don't do know that, that he's necessarily the right actor for this role, but uh, certainly at the time this film was made, uh, he was a hot enough property that it made sense to cast somebody of that caliber in this role. And, uh, you know, and, he, and, and this, the conquistador stuff is great too. The historical drama of this, this man hacking his way through the jungle and, you know, trying to get into the heart of this, uh, I guess, Aztec temple where the secret is basically being kept and trying to dissolve, decipher the mystery. I mean, all that stuff is fairly entertaining and fairly straightforward. Um, but it's visually sumptuous. Like, I, you know, I'm watching it, you know, I got to watch it on Blu-ray at least, but it really would have been nice to see this in a theater. I mean, Aronofsky, when you, you think you go back to Pi and what a sort of rudimentary black and white uh, kind of mystery getting into the, 
solving the, the mathematical secrets of the Talmud. Um, you know, that was his kind of launching point, but he certainly, uh, certainly become one of the most interesting visual stylists uh, since those early uh, roughshod indie days. And the fountain has certainly got a lot of great stuff going on in it visually. Uh, the same goes for Noah. I mean, I, I think a lot of people just didn't want to see a biblical epic and stayed away in droves, but I, I found it pretty compelling. It was one of Russell Crowe's better performances in recent years too. So, uh, and, and was often fairly straightforward, except for those giant rock monsters. I don't remember those guys from the Bible, but no. it was now, an, an interesting not, addition. Not with uh, Nick Nolte's voice. Uh, <laughs> yes. But uh, yeah, no, I, I found Noah to be interesting as well and uh, and very entertaining. And I, I enjoyed the way he sort of creatively adapted these, these stories uh, for his film. Uh, I certainly liked it more than Ridley Scott's Exodus Gods and Monsters. Oh, yeah. Or well. Gods and Kings or whatever the... Whatever it was called, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, no, I'm I'm with you there. I think every time he comes out, uh, Aronofsky brings something interesting that we haven't seen before, and I think that's what I like most about him. Yeah, I think you get the sense of of the brain behind the camera in these films, that, and you know he's he's definitely keen to do projects that really no other director is going to tackle uh, to to a great degree. I mean, the only you know maybe something like Scorsese's Silence that, that could have I guess been an Aronofsky project because it does have that that biblical underpinning, but, uh, you know, it's, it's something that's such a, you know, huge foundation of our, our culture and, and, uh, our literature. And yet it's something that's rarely addressed in films in an adult and non, I was gonna say non-inflammatory, but not non, either non-political or non-fundamentalist kind of way. So it's nice to see this material actually get taken seriously and, and put to good use. <laughs> So when you suggested freak out films, <laughs> I thought about what that meant. And I, 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 I you know, as I mentioned earlier, I, I think of contrary filmmakers, filmmakers who are looking to push us out of our comfort zones and shake us out of our complacency. I thought about someone like Lars von Trier or Todd Solondz, you know, two filmmakers who I, I sort of get what they're trying to do and I respect their sort of authorial, authorial voice and intent, but don't ask me to sit through too many of those movies because I find them, I, I don't necessarily need to go to the movies every time to feel abused, which is what I sometimes get from <laughs> yeah, those pictures. Yeah, I feel like sitting through Dogville or Mandalay again, so. No, but you know, I don't think all of these films are unpleasant experiences or difficult ones. I think a lot of them are dreamy. They're sort of psychedelic trips. I, I think we're gonna talk about some movies from the late 60s, early 70s, which is of that peak psychedelic era. Um, and you know, some of these filmmakers, I think I should mention, you know, are real, they've made some avant-garde masterpieces. We're talking uh, Bunuel, Fellini, Jodorowsky, Pasolini, Ken Russell, David Lynch, Bella Tarr are just some of the ones I was thinking about sure. when we were preparing for this. And I, I realized this is my opportunity to go back and watch a movie that I've only heard about but had never seen it. I don't know if I'd actually know many people who had seen it, which is Last Year at Marion Bad. Directed by Alan René, it's a French film. He's the filmmaker behind Hiroshima Mon Amour, which some people may know. And now that I've seen it, I still don't really know what to make of it, but I, I enjoyed watching it. Um, it, you know, it, its reputation is of one of the more impenetrable movies ever made, and maybe one of the more pretentious. But I think because it's French New Wave, it's maybe regarded with even more suspicion in some quarters. But best I can tell, it's a film about memory, about time, 
and how intangible all these things are. The whole thing takes place on the grounds of a sprawling hotel, which looks like a palace. It's actually shot on a series of palaces near Munich, Germany. Uh, in the hotel, there's a large group of well-dressed guests, and we hear snatches of their dialogue, sometimes repeated. And a man approaches a woman and claims that they had a liaison the previous year. She says she doesn't recall. She's there with her husband, and he kind of haunts the film. He threatens to interrupt the ongoing conversation between the man and the woman. Uh, but meanwhile, he also plays a parlor game with other guests, and he never seems to lose. Um, I like, really like the editing of this film. I like the experimenting of the imagery. I like the puzzle of it. But I don't know that it's actually solvable. I don't, I don't think it makes sense chronologically. I think if you look at it like you're entering a dream, I think, I think things are there to enjoy as a result of feeling like the dream, the dreaminess of it, just the way there are with Mother. I think you can take that approach, and I think, and I can see why it's been influential. I certainly recognize the places where Stanley Kubrick borrowed from some of the cinematography for The Shining. It, tonally, it's very different, but the fact it takes place in a hotel with all these hallways and this prowling camera made me think of The Shining. Um, yeah. Actually, so. well, it's, we've done shows in the past on looking at going through Roger Ebert's great movies list and, and trying to watch some of the films on that list that neither of us had seen before. And this turns out to be another one of those titles uh, that's on his great movies list that neither one of us had seen before. And uh, he draw. He, I don't think he mentions The Shining, but he does actually uh, imply that the hotel room scene at the end of 2001 A Space Odyssey was also inspired by this film. Aha, that's cool. Yeah, uh, I can see that. And, you know, that sterile, uh, luxurious yet sterile environment of the hotel room there was drawn directly. And, you know, this is only, that was only seven years after last year Marion Bad came out. So, uh, but that was sort of a tip of the hat and that this film was highly influential on him. And I, you can probably see echoes of it in Barry Lyndon as well, you uh -huh. know, which is a, a film I'm, I'm hoping to return to. I might be crazy, but I actually thought there were parts of La La Land just the way it was shot and the, that reminded me. I was like, I wonder if, uh, if there's a last, last year in Mary and Bed, like <laughs> probably uh, a tip of the hat here somewhere, just in, in terms of the camera work. Oh, uh, well, the, yeah. the, the, you know, the constantly moving camera work. And I mean, last year at Mary and Bad was the kind of film that, that uh, you know, more people talked about than saw. And then it became kind of required viewing for film students in the late 60s early 70s. And, uh, you know, in his essay, Ebert talks about how the fact that, it, you know, 10, 10 years after it was made, it was still packing them in at repertory cinema screenings. So people, even people who'd seen it before had to go back and see if they could reinterpret it or figure out what was going on. And, uh, you know, according to the director, uh, it wasn't really meant to be figured out. I mean, it was, you know, he made a film, you know, and work, working with Alain uh, uh, Robrier, I'm, I'm sure I bungled that name, but, um, you know, who is, is uh, an acclaimed screenwriter in his own right uh, and, and made films both abstract and also sort of straight, straight ahead linear narratives. Um, you know, some great films like Trans Europe Express is another one of his that's, that's worth looking into. But, um, you know, the two of them working together concocted this, this like you say, like a, like a puzzle film that can be looked at from different perspectives and seen completely different ways and uh, was really not meant to be solved or, or figured out. You know, not everything has an easy answer, and certainly this film doesn't. Um, Breaking all the Hollywood rules. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, but, and even, you know, even, even the other French New Wave films that, at the time, you know, still had pretty easy-to-understand storylines and, you know, would, would, 
would poke fun at the conventions of cinema by having characters talk to the camera and jump cuts and, and change the style of editing and everything here. Here, everything is very languid and smooth and, and uh, luxurious in a way that those films were kind of scrappy and kind of street level. And this film uh, visually is completely different uh, from those films, but also, you know, takes the rule, takes the rule book of cinema and throws it out the window and uh, writes its own rule book with just as much audacity as something like Breathless or 400 Blows. And, uh, you know, it just draws you in. Like, I mean, I, as I was watching it, I sort of lost track of time. Well, you know, the, the film really does cap, capture uh, or ca cast a hypnotic spell in a way that uh, a lot of films don't. And uh, You just about got landed on by Corey, by oh, the way. Well. <laughs> He's he, to do he that. flew over and then he changed his mind and he went back. He got scared. Well, there's a... Uh, I don't. We're, we're we're sitting here in in my lounge room, and there's a, a frisky puppy playing outside, and Corey gets quite upset by the the dog playing. <laughs> right. So that's right. that, that's why you're hearing a lot of parrot squawks in the background. As soon as that dog goes inside, he'll he'll calm down right away. But he gets very he just sees it as another animal invading his domain. So. Uh, okay, invading his dream space. <laughs> uh, so uh, another film we watched together. Speaking of dream space, uh, this is my clumsy segue. Okay. Please excuse it. I like a good clumsy um, segue. Uh, Zabriskie Point from 1970, another movie I had never seen. Uh, Michelangelo Antonioni, who is one of those Italian filmmakers who has made a number of really beloved films and a lot, a lot of head scratchers. Uh, I think I had seen Blow Up and I had seen The Passenger, yes. but I hadn't seen this. And this is one of those movies that was panned and was a total bomb when it opened. And in the course in the years since, it has been reconsidered, and there are there's definitely a, a group of fans for Zabriskie Point. Um, I, I like that the we watched the trailer, and I like one of the lines from the trailer, how you get there depends on where you're at, <laughs> um, which is... Groovy, man. Groovy, man. Yeah, it's, it's a total uh, time capsule of the sort of hippie generation uh, versus capitalism. And uh, Sam Shepard is credited as one of the writers, so that should give you some sense of where we're at. Um, it, is, uh, it is a gorgeous Los Angeles movie, great use of locations, and it's about kind of about a group of activist students and about the group of, uh, of real estate developers. And, and from these two groups, there comes a, a girl uh, and a boy, and they go out into the desert and have a wonderful time together. Uh, and, uh, and they find themselves and each other and have a lot of sex out in, in, uh, in Death Valley, the lowest point in the United States, uh, where Zabriskie Point, I guess, is, is part of that valley. And, uh, yeah, it is. Uh, it's a lot of far out conversation, man, and a lot of far out stuff. Uh, I, I actually found it kind of entertaining as a as a time capsule. Um, I and I really enjoyed the visual statement. I don't think the characters necessarily left me much to take away, but I I enjoyed the way it was shot, and uh, I also enjoyed that. Um, the Death Valley Junction, where some of one of the locations is used again later by David Lynch in Lost Highway, which we'll be talking about. Um, but uh, yeah, I uh, what did you make of Zabriskie Point? <laughs> well, it's 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 interesting how I mean, you know, I've seen some of the earlier films pre Blow Up, The uh, Note, and and um, La Ventura, which is a favorite where a woman mysteri vanishes mysteriously and no one's really sure what happened to her. And then by the end of the film, no one really cares. And, <laughs> and that's, you know, and that's kind of where that film goes. So, so, you know, it's, it's still kind of a straight ahead story as the, the characters lose interest in the search for this vanished woman. Um, 
and things get kind of more abstract as his career goes along. Uh, you know, blow up. We have a a um, photographer kind of aimlessly wandering around London trying to uh, you know maintain his career, but he gets caught up in a in a murder mystery, um, and it showcases that city very well. It's you know sometimes you need an outsider to really uh, put a put a place in a perspective, and and basically. Zabriskie Point, he's kind of doing the same thing with Los Angeles that he does with London and Blow Up. Um, except uh, he doesn't have a charismatic lead like David Hemmings and and, um, and uh, uh, Vanessa Redgrave. Uh, in this case, he's got a, a couple of kind of non-actors, uh, Mark Frechette and Daria Halperin, to play this, this, uh, this couple who, you know, become this, I guess, kind of an Adam and Eve out in the desert, as it were. Um, Frechette, I think... Uh, Either Antonioni or one of his uh, assistants saw this guy having a fight in the street where he threw a flower pot at somebody and thought he had the right kind of, uh, you know, radical spirit to, to play this, the character of, well, Mark. He goes by his first name, but he's a, he's a student radical who, uh, you know, just kind of drifts into aimless crime, steals an airplane and goes out into the desert, meets Daria, who's, uh, I guess, the daughter of the real estate developer, um, who's basically heading, heading to... Uh, uh, I guess her dad's house in the desert, this amazing cliffside mansion, um, way out in the middle of nowhere. I guess, outside of Phoenix, I think, is where they say it is. I don't think that's where it is in reality. I think it's, is it, you said it was in Arizona, I believe. Yeah, the, the I think, I think it's supposed, supposed to be out there. It, it, certainly mm. a gorgeous desert spot, like like a uh, uh, one of the a Bond villain lair or something. Very like much, that. yeah, very yeah. much like a Bond. Like, yeah, kind of like the, the, the house in, I think there's a similar one in Diamonds Are Forever, yeah, that's actually. right, there you go. Um, and uh, so, so essentially, you know, it starts off with the, the police quelling a student uprising on a campus, an unnamed campus somewhere in uh, presumably Los Angeles. Uh, and, uh, and then he kind of just drifts away from that and has to get away from it all and uh, go into the desert. And he, he kind of, I, I get the feeling he's kind of picked because he, he has kind of a James Dean kind of resemblance. It was kind of like James Dean student radical, I think uh-huh. is what Antonioni is going for. Um, Neither uh, Mark Frechette or Daria Halperin have a whole lot of, well, certainly no acting ability and, and not a ton of charisma, but they're attractive, uh, I guess. So that, that, I guess, that helps you focus in on them. But, uh, but it's all the stuff that happens around them, you know, just the environs of, of Los Angeles at, you know, this, when it was just at its smoggiest. And uh, all those billboard played by billboard, yeah, billboards everywhere. And yeah, I really enjoyed that. I enjoyed how much the frame included all these messages from corporate America, which was very much up and running. Uh, I, I'm going to guess that a lot of those were authentic, but maybe some of them were created for the film itself. It's hard to hard to know. There's there's one that's right on the edge of the valley when uh, Daria's driving off the highway that looks like it might have been created for the film, but all the rest of them. I mean, you know, there are certainly recognizable products going on there. Yeah, I think there's one of like sort of the average nuclear family that looks like it was probably maybe created for the film. Um, I think they spent something like $8 million on this movie and got maybe a tenth of that back at the box office. I mean, word got out pretty pretty quickly that this, this film was, uh, was not great and was, uh, you know, kind of a, an overblown spectacle of sorts. But it, you know, like I say, it does have that, snapshot quality of, of that time. And it is visually gorgeous. I mean, the shots of the desert are incredible. It would have been something to see this back in the day in the theater with the soundtrack by Pink Floyd and uh, other acts kind of blaring out of the speakers. Um, most, of the, most of the original music was created for the film by Pink Floyd, which is probably, 
has more to do with the film's notoriety than anything that Antonioni had to do with it. I think the fact that it has a Pink Floyd soundtrack kept it alive and in people's Jerry minds. Some Jerry Garcia as well in there. Yeah, too, some right? Jerry Garcia guitar noodling in the desert, yeah. uh, and uh, <laughs> and so you know some other you know so uh, there's a Rolling Stones song and some John Fahey blues and Roscoe Holcomb's uh, kind of Ozark uh, balladry. Uh, so it draws draws on a lot of different sources, but the um, the fact that it has actual original music written for it by by Pink Floyd, who did a couple other soundtracks at this time for some films that haven't necessarily aged terribly well and maybe weren't that well received at the time either, but uh, but the music lives on at least and keeps the names of those films alive. But uh, it's it, it is interesting to watch this film now, uh, you know, and and at a time where there were a number of films about student uprisings and unrest on the campus in the Vietnam era. I don't think Vietnam's ever mentioned. Uh, the, the film opens. With a, with a kind of a argumentative meeting between sort of white student activists and and black radicals and and they're kind of fighting over what the priority should be and how to how to you know how to get ROTC off campus you know the military organization and one guy says you know we could start a campaign to protest and somebody else suggests that you know, like just you know throw some Molotov cocktails into their headquarters and that'll get them off the campus pretty quick uh, as opposed to bringing more police down on their heads. Uh, so it, but it, but there was a lot of this kind of thing happening. I mean, it was you know basically kind of that rip from the headlines feel about the film, which which dates it as much as it en- energizes it, and um, you know gives it that kind of time capsule feel. Uh, I don't know that it's aged well, but I think it you know looking at it in hindsight, it does have that value as a, as a cultural artifact of sorts. Um, it, you can kind of laugh at it in some some regards because. The acting is so flat, and the scene where all of a sudden all these hippies appear out of nowhere to have sex in the desert while these two are getting it on, like there's some sort of earth elementals that came up out of the the sand at this uh, drained lake bed that is Zabriskie Point, uh, is is kind of a oddball concept, but it's in a way it's kind of mirrored in Mother by these strangers that appear out of nowhere to take over this house. So I don't know if that was directly in, inspired by Zabriskie Point, but it's interesting that it's a similar kind of concept and. Yeah, you, you the freak out effect. man goes through time. Dude. Exactly, yeah, he just goes through time. <laughs> now you saw you saw more as yes. well, which is also from the same era. And the Strawberry Statement. What do you want to say about those films? Well, it's it's kind of funny because they they're both kind of connected in a way. I mean, Strawberry Statement uh, stars a young Bruce Davison, who you might remember from some other movies and TV shows, as a as a kind of a, a kind of non radical student who gets radicalized by this uprising. Inspired, it's it's filmed in San Francisco, but it's actually inspired by an actual. Uh, student revolt at Columbia University in New York City where they took over the the administration building and eventually the cops swarmed in and beat some heads and carted a lot of them off to jail and sent many to the hospital. Um, this basically is kind of a fairly straightforward portrayal of what happened through the eyes of this guy who, you know, he's he's interested in what's going on. It's 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 kind of the in thing to do to be part of the student protest uh, as opposed to the right thing or the politically... Um, uh, prudent thing to do. And he also kind of falls for a girl played by Kim Darby, who some people might remember from the original version of, um, uh, oh, not Rooster Cogburn, but the, the other. The True Grit? True Grit, yes. Oh. She was in, in the original John Wayne True Grit. Um, and so he falls for her. She's committed to the cause. So he becomes more committed to the cause. Uh, and then all hell, eventually all hell breaks loose. And he's sort of torn between his sports activities uh, on the rowing team and, and this kind of, political uh, awakening. So it's, it's, it's interesting that it has that this guy kind of caught on both sides of, of the fence. Um, 
it has an extremely high powered soundtrack with uh, artists like Neil Young, Buffy St. Marie. I think there might be some Leonard Cohen in there. Um, you know, Crosby, Stills and Nash, which is why you can't find it on video anywhere because the cost of licensing those tracks would be astronomical for a film that doesn't really live up to its end of the bargain. I don't think the film oh. is as good as its soundtrack. And in fact, it's a film I only knew because I used to see the soundtrack album everywhere. Right. And the, the album, of course, crowed all these great bands that were on it. And it was, in fact, a pretty good record when you give the 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 star power of the people involved. And then to actually see the film, it's kind of a kind of a letdown. But uh, it does have some great cameos by people like Bud Court from uh, Harold and Maude, uh, Bob Balaban, who's one of my favorite character actors. He was on Seinfeld in a recurring role. He was also in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, usually playing kind of nebbish kind of characters. Um, here he plays a student activist who gets his you know, skull cracked by cop batons and gets hauled off to jail. And that's kind of weird to see him in this kind of younger role. And um, it's uh, it does turn up on TCM. That's where I got to see it. Uh, so keep an eye out for that. Uh, just, again, another more of a time capsule movie, but it's certainly evocative of its time. Um, and so is more. It's directed by Barbie Schroeder. Uh, again, best known for having a Pink Floyd soundtrack. Uh, there's, a, there's an entire album called More by Pink Floyd, which uh, has the songs... They wrote for the album. And, uh, you know, but the film is basically about a couple of attractive drifters who wind up on the island of Ibiza long before it became sort of trendy to do so. And they're, they're drawn to the kind of hedonistic um, lifestyle of this uh, this Mediterranean, uh, this, this kind of, not tropical, but certainly, you know, paradise-like getaway. And they just take a lot of drugs and, and are <laughs> yeah. obnoxious to them and everyone around them and slowly go into this... Uh, you know, they go from like psychedelic and, and smokables into uh, heroin and complete uh, moral and spiritual breakdown. So, you know, the, the sort of thing you'd expect to, to have a Pink Floyd soundtrack. Sure. Um, <laughs> well, just like uh, Pink Floyd eventually got its own movie yeah. you know, with Pink Floyd, The Wall. Yeah, I would stick with The Wall. I mean, I was curious to see this because I really like that album more. And I was curious to see how the songs would work in context. And, and that, you know, they do they do work you know, in, in sketching out this kind of relationships descent into hell, as it were, um, and and Barbie Schroeder, you know, he's, he became a better director years later. Things like Reversal of Fortune, mm -hmm. for example, Barfly, uh, I think, and Barfly. Good, yeah. um, you know, this is him in his early days, uh, and it's kind of like you know, whatever happens, happens, man, kind of thing. <laughs> and uh, uh, you know, I was happy to finally see it to kind of have my curiosity sated, but it's not a film I would return to. <laughs> Welcome back to Lends Me Your Ears. I'm Stephen Cook. I'm Karsten Knox. And we're talking about films that freak you out, which is, it's kind of an asinine description, but it's, <laughs> it's what I came up with and we're, we're, we're you know. We're going to run with it. Yeah, we're going to run with it. I, I'm basically talking about films that, that uh, you know, d don't follow the, the cinematic norms, don't try to tell a nice compact three-act story and, uh, you know, definitely are out to take you someplace you've never been in a way that only cinema can do it. And uh, I guess a discussion on this line, uh, along these lines, re really uh, would be uh, lacking if we didn't include the work of, of David Lynch. Um, you know, probably that most dreamlike of, of directors who's made some, uh, some truly awe-inspiring and nightmare-inducing visions, going right back to his first film, uh, uh, Eraserhead, which... You know, it, like like many of these films, takes place in its very own special reality that is not uh, grounded in any world or life we know, which is uh, industrial Pittsburgh, I believe, which is a true hellscape of its own. And um, 
you know, certainly he's got a lot of work under his belt that that fits uh, into this description, uh, including his most recent project, the uh, Return to Twin Peaks, which has both amazed and confounded fans of the original series. Uh, we're, we're not going to talk about that, but uh, you know, you've either seen it or you haven't, and you probably have your own conclusions to draw about it. But it's uh, certainly certainly something to return to and find uh, new stuff in uh, with repeated viewings. But uh, but the film we decided to pick is one that is um, maybe a little less heralded and wasn't terribly well-received at the time. Uh, in Halifax, it played at Wormwoods for a week, I think, and that was kind of like your one shot at seeing it. I think I saw it twice in that week just because it just seemed like such the kind of film that you needed to see on a big screen. Like, it, it, was, it was almost purely visual and not necessarily um, linear or... Uh, you know, straight up dramatic. Uh, and that is Lost Highway, which is, uh, he's um, uh, once again collaborating with uh, Barry, not Barry Guilford, I think I got that right, name wrong, but uh, the the uh, author of uh, Wild at Heart, uh, which was the, the film that he did between seasons of Twin Peaks, the, the kind of wild, uh, in-your-face, Wizard of Oz-inspired road film uh, with Nicolas Cage. <laughs> in this case, it's, you know, the obviously it's Lost Highway. The road is a, is a theme throughout the film. But it's, it's much more kind of a nod to hard-boiled fiction, like the work of Jim Thompson, maybe even a bit of Raymond Chandler, but in a very nightmarish, David Lynch, uh, surreal kind of way, where we get uh, a man uh, who, we start off with uh, Bill Pullman as a sax player whose wife... Uh, played by Rosanna, uh, sorry, uh, Patricia Arquette. Uh, she's killed in a very grisly and Black Dahlia-esque manner. Uh, and he goes to, he takes the rap for it. He goes to jail. And uh, through some mysterious confluence of desert voodoo or something, we're never really quite sure. Uh, the influence of a, a man who may be from another dimension, played by Robert Blake. He's kind of like Bob in Twin Peaks in a lot of ways. Uh, very reminiscent of that character. Um you know, so maybe he is from the Black Lodge. Maybe there are direct ties to Twin Peaks. But overnight, he somehow transforms into a completely different person, a car mechanic played by Baltazar Getty, who is um, connected to a kind of a mobster porn baron played by Robert Loggia, uh, whose primary star is, uh, again, another woman played by uh, Patricia Arquette. So basically, you got on one side, you've got two actors playing the same character or a variation on the same character, and then you've got one a actress playing two different, completely different characters um, for that uh, excellent uh, David Lynch duality. <laughs> it is it is a duality, isn't it? It's like the, the David Lynch cinematic universe is a strange one. Um, but uh, interesting when we're talking about all these movies, how often the desert plays a role in these freak-out movies. And I th suspect that the myth of the desert even for, especially from Los Angeles, from oh, yeah. Los Angeles, right it's right there, and it's full of you know of of mysticism that is associated with it. And I suspect that has a lot to do with it. As we mentioned, uh, uh, there were parts of uh, of Lost Highway that were shot in Death Valley, which uh, which featured in the earlier film we talked about, Zabriskie Point. I uh, am run hot and cold with David Lynch. I was never a big <laughs> fan of Twin Peaks, and I haven't seen the new the new reboot or the new sequel to that series. But I did like The Elephant Man. I really rewatched Dune, and I found things to enjoy there. Uh, and I think Blue Velvet and Mulholland Drive are remarkable films. I really enjoy his sort of creepiness uh, and his commentary on Hollywood and on the... Uh, 
you know, the underbelly, the seedy underbelly of American life. Um, here, I I liked it. I like some of it. Uh, I'm not a big fan of Bill Pullman, so I, I I find him a little bland. So I struggled with his character, but I I really enjoyed how just wacky it was. And uh, Robert Blake without without eyebrows is terrifying. <laughs> yeah, and sort of pasty makeup and just coming out of the shadows. And it, yeah, there's there's some terrific stuff here. And I, I I don't think it's a film a lot of people return to, probably because it's not as story driven. But there's so many you know, great visual moments scattered throughout the film. And again, I saw it in the theater. I saw it twice. And, uh, you know, I, I felt like like any frame in this film could have been a painting, uh, you know, especially things like Pullman just coming out of the shadows of the apartment, which seems to have like an, an endless hallway that maybe it extends into another dimension. It's hard to say. Um, that's right, Corey. Corey can say. Uh, and... Uh, uh, if only it had been Bill Paxton and not Bill Pullman. <laughs> I'm or, a big much. I was a much bigger <laughs> fan of Bill Paxton. Than or or, Bill, or Pullman. Bill Pullman had played one variation on the character, and Bill Paxton had played the other. That oh, that would have been that would have been perfect. Yeah, but uh, I guess Baltazar Getty's character is kind of naive, and uh, I don't know if that Paxton would have necessarily pulled that off at at that phase in his career. Um, I He's think also it, a little older than the that's Baltazar true, yes. Getty. He goes from from a guy who is in his late thirties, probably, to someone in there who's twenty four. Yeah, which like is that. an interesting other another interesting sort of dichotomy there. Uh, I don't know that it's supposed to make sense, but uh, I really enjoyed. There were parts of the film that just made me really joyful. I really liked seeing Gary Busey show up in a small role, Henry Rollins. Uh, Richard Pryor, who I think is maybe in only one scene, but uh, probably his last appearance. Yeah, he's running the garage, film. and you see him, and he's yeah. in a wheelchair, and he's he's still incredible. Even even in the throes of, uh, I believe it was, was it multiple sclerosis? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even in the throes of his disease and kind of, uh, you know, I don't know if he's reading off a cue card or what, it kind of looks like he might be, but even then, he's still got this incredible charisma, you know, yeah. even in his final days. And, uh, you know, he probably just enjoyed being on a film set you know, at a time when he wasn't really able to do a, a full feature. But, um, you know, and, and I think Lynch has so many different influences and he's really good at kind of caging them and hiding them. Like, for example, in Twin Peaks, there's just lots of nods to film noir and and specific things like the movie Laura. Uh, you know, he borrowed several characters' names and the idea of a woman who's dead but maybe isn't dead and, and identical uh, characters and that kind of thing. He, you know, all come right out of that classic film noir. Um but uh, then he kind of manages to twist and cloak them in ways that uh, that make them a little more obscure. I think uh, with Lost Highway, speaking of obscure, um, there's a Luis Bunuel film called That Obscure Object of Desire, where um, the uh, the woman the, uh, of the title, uh, a flamenco dancer, is played by two different actresses. And, um, you know, they kind of go back and forth between who's playing the character in any given scene. And sometimes they have both actresses playing her within the same scene. So it's just Bunuel playing tricks with the audience and, uh, you know, being the premier cinematic surrealist, uh, you know, he's obviously a huge influence on uh, on Lynch. And uh, I, I suspect that there's some sort of homage happening with having this one character turn into a completely different character um, over the course of uh, one night in this jail cell. Uh, and, uh, you know, it is, it is pretty hard-boiled and it does have a bit of a mystery that, We'll probably have different solutions to whoever happens to watch the film, and I kind of appreciate that. And I like going, I like going back to this film uh, and enjoying some of those aspects of it. Uh, and of course, your favorite scene, the uh, the no tailgate. Yeah, scene yeah. Where Robert Loggia 
takes takes uh, offense from a tailgater uh, driving through the Hollywood Hills, and uh, he uses his Mercedes to run the guy off the road, and then really teaches him a thing or two about proper driving etiquette. Uh, yeah, I love that scene. I thought that was hilarious. Yeah, it's um, like Dennis Hopper going full on Pap's Blue Ribbon and in Blue Velvet. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. No, I uh, I did like this one. I don't think I liked it as much as Mulholland Drive, though it does share a certain structural similarity yes. with that film. There's a, there's a um, midpoint where everything shifts. Yeah, um, but you know, it's funny, talking about these freak-out movies and about um, Lost Highway, uh, and I was thinking about other David Lynch that I haven't seen, and I realized I haven't seen Inland Empire, and you haven't either. And no. it strikes me that that if people listening are interested in really going down the rabbit hole of freakout movies, that might be the one to try. I gather it's three hours. It's barely comprehensible. All I've heard about it is that it's it's Lynch at his most most Lynchian. And I think there is a rabbit in it. So I think you. Yes. I think it literally is a rabbit hole. I think I think he may have thrown that out there just to. Yeah, or people in rabbit suits. Yes, exactly, yeah. So, yeah. Um, so that might be worth looking into for those who really want to go full full Lynch. But uh, it's, it, is, it is disappointing that Lost Highway didn't have a better run in, in theaters because, uh, you know, I think, you know, Lynch makes the, his work appropriate to the venue it's being screened in. Like, you know, he doesn't, once he's made the film, he, and he doesn't really want to go back to it or... Do a director's cut or anything like that, and and uh, Lost Highway I thought was 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 so visual and so so captivating on a big screen. It's it's kind of hard to watch it at home because it can be, you know, you're you're so easily distracted, and it, it does cast quite a spell on you as a viewer, especially with the sound design of this film. We were remarking uh, we had the 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 Blu-ray, which unfortunately it's not available on Blu-ray in North America. I don't even know how easy it is to get on DVD because I know the DVD was out out of print and hard to find for quite a long time. But uh, there is a UK if you have a machine that can play uh, Blu-rays from the UK, uh, I recommend tracking this down and, and playing it loud because the, so much effort went into the sound design as it usually does with most Lynch projects. But here, and I, I think maybe Trent Reznor had some hand in the soundtrack for this film because there's a there's quite a bit of music in the film. It opens with a great David Bowie song, um, but but also just sound effects and the the, the sound ambiance of this film are are pretty incredible from one scene to the next, and um, uh, you know a, a pretty vital part of what makes this film work so well, which might be lost on the small screen or heaven forbid a tablet or a computer or something like that. Uh, you know the, the the audio aspects of Lynch's films are pretty key. I, th- I think of to some of the some of the uh, soundscapes in Blue Velvet, for example. You know when the camera goes inside of that ear and uh-huh. the ants are crawling everywhere. It's uh, it's it's a vital thing that sometimes gets overlooked. You know people yeah. think about dialogue or music or whatever, but 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 he creates a whole other universe just in the audio. Uh-huh. Uh, and and Lost Highway, uh, you know, especially with one of the players. One of the uh, main characters being a jazz musician who plays pretty abrasive, loud, punishing jazz sax um, solos. Yeah, just yeah. the blistering. Sa- you know, this ain't Kenny G. Um, <laughs> you know, it's it's definitely the kind of film where you have to use all your senses mm. to really get the full effect. As we are uh, wrapping up here, I just want to give a quick nod to a couple other films I saw while we were researching this. This uh, Enter the Void from the sometimes infuriating Gaspar Noé. This is from 2009, and it is a truly psychedelic tale told through the eyes of its lead protagonist. Uh, The screen even goes black when he blinks. Uh, Oscar is a young man living in Tokyo. He's a drug user, and he is early on in the movie, he is shot and killed in a nightclub, but the rest of the movie, his spirit floats through a (laughs) neon-filled 
world as he tries to connect with his sister who's working as a stripper in the city. Uh, as children, they promised they'd always be together, so I guess he's trying to fulfill this blood pact. Um, I enjoyed the conceit, and it's very druggy vibe. It's very freak-out vibe in this sort of post-mortem dreamscape. Uh, the aesthetic is gorgeous. The sound, as you were talking about sound, is really great. Uh, but it's also very demanding. It'll test your patience. And uh, I don't know that we really care too much about the characters, and that's a problem. But, uh, but you know, I, I liked its ambition, just like I liked a lot of these other movies for its ambition, even though I think some people might consider it very tedious. I don't know. Have you ever seen the film? I have not. But, I, you know, I've, I've seen clips of its kind of candy-colored uh uh, scenes and uh, it's definitely high on my list of things that I want to kind of dive into. But yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's worth it. But knowing what I know about his work, I, I have to temper my enthusiasm. It's a, it's a lot easier to watch than Irreversible. Yeah, I'll okay, say that. Well. Um, and then another film, Gus Van Zant's Jerry, which brings us back to the desert yes. once again uh, in this sort of expressionistic, uh, you know, strange Beckett esque story uh, of Matt Damon and Casey Affleck, who both play, play guys named Jerry, and they get lost in the desert together. Uh, you know, it's the whole waiting for Godot thing. And uh, I can't quite say that I'd recommend it, but I think it's also not something you're going to easily forget. And uh, I, I appreciated what, uh, what, what uh, Vance Ant and his collaborators are trying to do with it. Yeah, I think maybe it comes from that whole tradition of heading into the desert and dropping peyote and tripping out you know maybe that's why yeah. so many of these films like to use that kind of uh barren landscape and i and also i guess because it's this kind of thing you can write your own imagery onto in, in a way you know getting away from you know los angeles getting out into joshua tree or wherever you want to wind up uh yeah. down in that area and we would never advocate drug use for watching these movies no however if you are you, if you do tend into uh hallucinogenics there <laughs> there might be something here for you <laughs> i know i have a friend who Dropped acid before watching Eraserhead, and it went very badly. So, just uh, forewarned is forearmed. <laughs> well, that's it for our look at trippy films here on Lens Me Your Ears, and what a long, strange trip it's been. But uh, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you uh, heard of some films that you might want to go check out uh, and uh, and uh, freak out your friends a little bit. Uh, <laughs> If you need to get a hold of us, uh, we have an email address here at lensmeyourearspodcast at gmail.com and also a Twitter account at lensmeyourears. And of course, you can also find us on Facebook. So please drop by our Facebook page and give us a like and, and maybe a message there as well. And uh, I'm also on Twitter at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. I'm on Twitter uh, via my blog at Flaw in the Iris. And if you like the show, you can always support us uh, via Patreon. We have an uh, ongoing fundraising effort there, and you can throw a few dollars our way, and uh, that's always appreciated. As always, we'd like to thank the folks at CKDU 88.1 FM for airing us every other Tuesday, and uh, the Village Soundcast Network for putting all the fine finishing touches on our musings. Lends Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Check out all of their amazing music and so much more at gypsophilia.org. Send feedback to lendsmeyourearspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production. 